Oh, it is that time again. It's peer pressure. I am your host, Diane Kamikaze. Today's guest is Spit Sticks, known by some as Tim Leach, drummer of Fear and of Portland band Nasal Rod, currently. We will talk to him about the legendary performance of Fear on Saturday Night Live. Find out who calls him Spitty. And some background on the Decline of Western Civilization movie, among other things. Thanks to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast, and thanks to Liz Berg for handling the other podcast duties. We are... WFMU. I hear you this time. Aha! Thank you. I completely apologize. That was operator error, as we like to say. Uh, My guest is... is I was deaf. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly, an affliction. No idea. Uh, um, Thank you. Uh, Spit, shall I call you Spit or shall I call you Tim? You can call me Tim. All right, Tim. I I have friends who still call me Spit or Spitty or Spitto, but... And, Most people know me as Tim these days. And, and how did the name Spit come about? Were you a spitter? Not at all. I, I was Californian, heavy into barbecuing. It was the other kind of spit. Actually, that's not true. My brother and I, like uh, our roommate, parents lived in England, and he came back in 1976 with a fresh Sex Pistol record. Ooh. And I was totally into jazz and to fusion and to international. I was into Saudi Arabian music, actually, at the time. And kind of lost interest with rock. Kind of it slowed down with with Pink Floyd and things. It just seemed to be so sleepy. So the Sex Pistols album woke me up, and it was funny, and it inspired me. So my brother and I were going to form a band called Spit, and it never came to pass. But when I joined Fear, with Durf having a name like Durf Durf. Scratch and leaving, I couldn't really be Timmy Leach, even though that's kind of cool, but uh, I couldn't really leave that. So Spit kind of came to mind, and it and it kind of sounds like a hi-hat, hitting a hi-hat, Spit sticks. It was a very percussive sound. And my uncle had a company called Gone Bops. He made congas, and that was kind of a percussive kind of sound. So I thought, ah, oh, Spit sticks. It kind of sounds like a hi-hat and a snare hit. That's where that came from. Oh, neat. But so- also, it's funny because when I work with Nina Hagen, I remember being in an Autobahn walking getting something to eat with her, and, and she puts her arm around me and calls me Spitty. Like, oh, okay, well, I tried to get rid of that little IE, but it keeps creeping back. That does sort of, that, that definitely changes the context of, yeah, uh, of, of a tough... Minutizes it a little bit. Yeah, of a, of a punk name when you when you add the little, the, the little IE to it. That's cute, yeah. though. I can see. <laughs> a little too cute, but I don't care. It's it's all good. <laughs> I could see her doing that. So, um, so thank you for coming on the show. And of course, there's you are so accomplished, and there's so much with you. And I'm I'm already afraid that we're going to run out of time. Um, I guess you know I'd like to just sort of have you chronicle a little bit. And and Spit has a really cool um, website out there. I believe it's called Punk Chronicle. Yeah, you can find it under just, you punch in spit sticks and Punk Rock Chronicle. As a side, I did kind of like a blow by blow kind of my time with fear just to take some of the uh, iffiness. Some people weren't quite sure, you well, know, rumors of this and that. And 
Yeah, and it's and, great, and it's and it's a it's a quick, but it's really sort of like bulleted items about fear in a way. And and if I may, I'd like to just read the little introduction that's on the the site. It says, um, "Yeah, yeah." Uh, Spit sticks a, a punk chronicle. Spit's time with fear, nineteen seventy eight to nineteen ninety three. Going to a fear show always guaranteed a show by the audience. Plenty of people thought our stage rantings were serious. Dead Kennedys thought we were fascists. Homophobes thought we were gay. Lesbians thought we were misogynists. Entertainment is a form of employment. We were just working hard. It's funny. The Dead Kennedys, we've played San Francisco quite a bit. Up Mobuhead Gardens and on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And done shows with them. But they took us seriously and didn't like the fact that when you visit San Francisco a lot, uh, the tourists call it Frisco. And, mm-hmm. of course, the natives hate that, and they correct you constantly. So just liking, liking to rile people up, and the audience, Lee, would say, yeah, we're a local band, we're from Frisco, we're gay. So going back to Los Angeles, hearing people online that didn't know that I was eavesdropping on them would say that. They're from Frisco, and they're gay. <laughs> <laughs> so both things were wrong, but it was hilarious. It was just this great you know, buzz on the, at street level that people were getting wrong, but it was just exactly what we wanted, that misinformation out there that kind of got people in conversation with each other, correcting each other. And because you're observing what happened and, and how you sort of put yourselves in there, would you say that there was a that that um, there was a message or a focus for fear in terms of how you approached every show or I think well, I wasn't a front man. I think as an entertainer and a musician, I tried to kind of raise the musical bar. I tried to play more musical drums than just oompa fast. Oh you did. You beat. did. Being from a musical family, I just tried to bring that musical influence in. I'd been playing fusion and some stuff that wasn't so straight, and I tried to bring that influence into fear myself. So speaking for myself, I know that Philo is very much a mathematician. He's got a degree in physics, and so he thinks very mathematically. So he brought in kind of some mathy elements in himself. So between he and I, putting those elements into something kind of palatable, Lee put the icing on it with kind of a Don Rickles approach, which was just the opposite of so many bands that I loved, you know, bands we'd play with X, and John would say, thank us everyone for coming out, really love you guys, and really appreciate blah, 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 so our message, you know, was, you know, fuck you all, or excuse me, or the beep there, um, okay. the message was just the opposite, it was more the Don Rickles approach of, of I'm sorry you guys came here tonight, you should go home and cut your hair, so it was, <laughs> It was reverse psychology, you know, in the extreme, and it worked really well because people did cut their hairs and they came back and they started seeing that it was tongue-in-cheek. And even Bob Biggs from Slash, who signed us eventually, saw that it was tongue-in-cheek, saw that it was kind of Don Rickles. And Lee had told me he had seen Little Richard in the 50s play to like a sellout house and everyone was dressed to the nines and jammed up against the stage, you know, with their nice gowns and, and suits mm. and little richard finally comes on after a long evening and with all this crowd and the crowd smooshing up against the stage he pulls a can of right guard out and tells the everyone in the audience they stink and proceeds to spray the whole front row with right guard wow so lee lee loved that kind of irreverence and kind of brought that with his reverse psychology and he's uh kind of a tough guy anyways he's Irish, Italian, so he's got hot blood. So it was very easy for him to fall into that role. So Philo balanced that, and even Durf balanced that kind of with the extreme yin on the other end of Lee's yang, just to keep it in balance. Philo would be act totally wimpy, as extremely wimpy as he could against Lee's extreme macho. And it was 
it was funny. It was a good balance when the humor against the aggro delivery of the music was something that wasn't all one way or the other. There was, there was an interesting balance. Was that how it was off stage, also, like in rehearsal and, and that kind of thing? No, off stage, I think it was very, very much a creative, funny atmosphere off stage. We, we all got along really well and enjoyed each other's company, and it, it wasn't like that at all. I, however, Lee, very much being a band leader, would bring songs in that were finished and say, Here's the song, let's do it. And so there wasn't a lot of cooperation in songwriting as much as Lee brought stuff in. Stuff did get written, though, by, on, at rehearsals, and a lot of times I'd, I'd get to rehearsal ahead of time and warm up, and Durf would just start playing a bass line through my warm-ups, like the song Fresh Flesh is exactly that. Mm. It's just one of my warm-ups that Durf started playing a bass line to, and it became a song. And songs like I Don't Care About You is an exercise. Uh, Let's Have a War. Philo kind of pushed me into that beat, but it's bas- basically an exercise of my just warming up before... I played, so oh, I can really? play at mock speed when the song starts. So a lot of that stuff is based out of some of my exercises, but for the most part, Lee would bring songs, finished songs in. That's really interesting, because in, in some ways it's like, I think that the, the vocals and the drumming is the most important part of Fear, and to say that, that some of these were actually started off as drum exercises is is not really a surprise but it's really cool and you know we did just play let's have a war i think in the, in the uh oh we played oh we destroyed the family in the last set and just that's yeah. very much an exercise yeah an exercise in in, in 10 8 that's it's basically a single stroke roll exercise you know put to the drum kit and and it's and it's one that i teach i teach drums now um to a couple of, one of my advanced students i I've, I've taught that exact exercise too. Oh, really? Basically a single stroke roll exercise in five. Mm-hmm. So it it's, comes from my drum and bugle corps days. Uh, when I was like 12, I joined a private drum and bugle corps, the Royal Cavaliers in Los Angeles, and that kicked my butt. And, I, and it forged me into something that I wasn't before. And I still use those exercises to warm up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dick Dale had called me in 95, and I hadn't played in two years when I quit Fear. I was totally bummed out because I put like 15 years. I was really upset about that band not going the direction that it had been going for so long. And so I just stopped playing drums. I got into studying digital audio and some other things. And Dick Dale called me and he says, I've got a tour. Pulp Fiction was out and he wanted to tour uh, the East Coast and he wanted me to play drums for him. One of my buddies was playing bass with him and he'd heard of me through the grapevine. So he called me and says, I got 40 songs for you to learn. I'll be out there in two weeks. Wow. So I just went to rehearsal studio for a couple hours a day and practiced my exercises, the same ones I teach now, and it brought me totally back up to speed, and I was ready two weeks later. So the exercises that I've used since I was 12, I still use. The drum and bugle core background. They, I planned a drum kit, not just one drum, but they are evergreen. Wait, say that again? They're timeless. Those exercises oh. just work forever. Yeah. Yeah, and so when were you playing rock when you joined Fear? I wasn't really. I when I first joined Fear, I was into reggae. I was into um, some African music. A friend of mine, CC Smith, ran the Beat Magazine, Reggae Beat Magazine. So I was really into his African music and uh, stuff that was more challenging for me rhythmically. As you know, I've been playing since I was eight. So wow. by the time I was twenty-two, when I joined Fear, I, rock music was like my left hand would fall asleep, you know, wasn't doing anything. <laughs> so I really got into music that was a little more challenging. I was looking at people like Tony Williams and, and Billy Cobham and some drummers that were more challenging 
rhythmically, but keeping me on the edge of my seat. So when I joined Fear, it was challenging. It was fast, and I broke a sweat. And these guys were athletes, so I felt I was with people that were working at my own pace. And it was rock, and because I like punk from the Sex Pistols, I, I got the humor, and I love that aggro balance with humor. I, and so I fell right into it. And of course, I could play it right away. It's just my approach to it was not such a rock approach, even though I'd played rock forever. I tried to bring something a little more different into it, but I liked the intensity. Drummers that I'd seen, like Carla from uh, uh, the Controllers, Carla Mad Dog, mm -hmm. really pushed it. The drummer from the Vibrators, British band, also just played right up on the beat. And so I just, I noticed drummers, a few drummers that were out there that were playing up there. I'd gone to see the Ramones at the Whiskey in L.A., and I remember they stopped one song, and it was two, three, four, boom, right into the next song. And people on the dance floor were exhausted. <laughs> I just loved it. I was, of course, on the dance floor, totally drenched in sweat and exhausted myself. So with fear, I was really excited to, to stop one song, and, and Lee would just, what did he what did he boom, right into the next song. It was like, yes, this is what I love. Yeah. Loved out in the audience, so I loved playing it because I could do it. I was a runner. I still am a runner. So I love the cardiovascular part of that. And, and Fear was very much an athletic uh, band and, and pushed other bands. I think that became a thing amongst, at least in L.A. punk bands that I was aware of, it kind of been, uh, we kept the rung high with faster and faster. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, we can do, you know, faster and faster. So mm -hmm. that was a, a fun part of it for me. Just being a drummer, of course, is very athletic. But then punk was at the end of my gas pedal, which I love. And I still love doing it. I still love playing fast. Nasal Rod has some really fast stuff and shows I'm drenched. And playing drum and bass live for, for a while in New York City while I lived there was the same thing. It was, it was, everything's 180 BPM. Oh, yeah. And you're at the end of your brain's ability and your body's ability, which I, I love being there. I do need to ask you about sort of two big things in Fear's history because the listeners would just totally freak out if I didn't. Um, <laughs> the uh, Halloween 1981, the legendary Saturday Night Live appearance. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did that come about? Well, Durf was teaching Tino and Sana, bass player. Uh, he was teaching a bass, and Tino's uh, from Chicago, Second City comedian alumni and had hung as buddies with John Belushi. And Belushi had seen New Wave Theater. Uh, Peter Ivers hosted this uh, show, David Joe producer. It was pre-MTV in Los Angeles and cable TV around the country. That uh, David Joe would have bands in a circle, and he'd just film a couple songs and move the cameras to the next little quadrant and move around the hub filming bands. And it was there that uh, John had seen us perform, and we did a mock-up. Peter Ivers, the host, was an awesome person, very androgynous and gay on looking on camera. However, he's a black belt in karate and very smart. He'd done the soundtrack to Eraserhead. Very, very, very oh, awesome. Wow. Yeah, but because his uh, stage persona was so gay, it just left us open to, like, not leave it alone. And we did a mock beat-up of him. And, of course, he could have kicked all of our asses, but he, he went along with us knowing we were kidding. <laughs> And it looked great on camera to John because, you know, this is Peter was the guy you loved to hate kind of at the time. And then John saw us in the decline of Western civilization, and that kind of was the censure. And he found out through Tino that Tino knew Durf, the bass player, and he got our phone numbers from Durf. And Durf wasn't available at that particular moment. And 
he called Lee and I and invited us to the uh, place above the Roxy on the rocks in Los Angeles just for some beers. He wanted to meet us. So, of course, we jumped on it. And within a few minutes of meeting him at this place, uh, this fancy private club, I walk in, Jack Nicholson is sitting there and Tatum O'Neill. Wow. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm somewhere special. And John just knew all of our jokes. He immediately says, hey, I'll give you a dollar if you'll be my friend. And so he knew all our shtick, and I apologized because I didn't even have a TV at the time. <laughs> but I didn't really know his stuff, but he overlooked that. And by the end of our hangout, he says, you got to do Saturday Night Live. And I thought, okay, I just had 16 beers, and my adrenaline's going, and I didn't even feel him. And I thought, okay, this guy's, I've never met this guy in my life. He's telling me I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live. And so I didn't believe him. I went home, and I puked. <laughs> and I figured I'd, I'd never see him, hear from him. And like two weeks later, guy Eric from Rockefeller Center, this is Eric from Rockefeller Center, uh, what kind of set do you want built? And I thought, what is Rockefeller Center? And he goes, well, for your Saturday Night Live show. And I said, uh, I, uh, I, I guess an alley or something. That's what I told him. Okay. And I hang up, and I was like, I realized, hey, we're going to do Saturday Night Live. So that's how I was told about it. Mm-hmm. But the irony of that is John had asked the Circle Jerks and the Go-Go's to do it before he even asked Fear, and both of those bands dissed him. Wow. I'm sure the Circle Jerks just didn't return his calls, and the, and the Gogo's probably figured, okay, here's a chubby boy, you know, you know, macking us. <laughs> but but he actually told me that he asked them and was brokenhearted that they didn't even return his calls. <sighs> so, you know, we weren't the first that he wanted to get on that show, but we actually made it, even though we weren't signed, technically. And he loved the fact that, that it's kind of shook up the house there, and so much so that the cable or the union people got really upset when we actually showed up and were really upset because... 1981, of course, people really thought punks were kind of like clockwork orange and it's the end of the world or something. They didn't realize, you know, that there were some nice people in those punk costumes. Oh, yeah, there was but, absolute fear attached to the stigma of punk, for sure. But but the word fear put on it, you know, people were intimidated. Yeah. Eddie Murphy was saying, what the F is going on here, you know, get this you know, out of here. <laughs> he was very upset. And wow. Other people were cool, like Tim Kazarinski. Other people on the crew got the joke, and they knew that we were not going to kill them. But a lot of people were upset, and the union people complained when someone tripped over a cable. And John went up to Grant Tinker's office and said, look, we want the dancers, he called them, mm-hmm. who's, you know, a lot of very cool people were on that in that group. But he says, we want the dancers. They're part of the show. So Grant Tinker says, okay, you know, if you intro the show, people think you're actually on the show. I'll do it. So that was John's agreement. John opens the show at a urinal talking to someone, and he turns around and, you know, it says live from Saturday night from New York City, you know, and introduces the show. It was a trade-off to uh, please the Grant Tinker to appease the union people who were upset. And then when a pumpkin got thrown at a monitor and someone had to clean it, they claimed we did like $250,000 damage. That's what I saw. But actually, someone said there was a lot of hair from haircuts and spit and some other things in the green room. And the riot police escorted all those people out, which I didn't even see. Going to and from stage, we were, you know, escorted with red carpet and people, James Taylor, a lot of people hanging around, giving us props. And so we didn't see any of that business. Uh, We just heard about it later. And of course, our name was Mud for a while on decent clubs. They believed that we'd just come in and gut their club if we played there. So Really? But, but I mean, there was a certain street cred that you got for sort of breaking that, that barrier and somehow getting yourselves on TV and bringing a whole bunch of punks. I mean, New York punks 
um, and DC punks onto the show. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that was and, you But I think John, John had a, a love of blues. Uh, like, you know, he, he met Curtis Zogato here in Portland at Eugene, and that's how the whole Blues Brother thing came. Lee had a, has a lot of blues influence himself. So it was just John's love of blues and John being a wannabe Buddy Miles, you know, when I would jam with John, he would sit at the drums and he was just in seventh heaven. He just loved playing drums and singing. You know, he wishes he was Buddy Miles. And so it was John's love of blues, really, that he saw that element in fear. And of course he saw the humor and he saw the musicianship and wanted to bring that to the public. So John just being, you know, just a good steward for, for music that he loved because he wanted it. He was like a musician trapped in an actor's body is what he told me. <laughs> but he loved it. He and I would hang out. I was producing his his album and, the, and of course, uh, stuff for the movie Neighbors. And he was paying me 500 bucks a day. This is in 1981, 82, wow. you know, to produce his stuff. So he's a very, very generous cat. And then, we'd, you know, we'd go get a bite to eat and eat, and we'd drive by what's now the Viper Room. We'd drive by the Central and we'd I remember walking in, and the band just, their mouths drop, and I just sit on the drums, and, and John grabs the mic, and we're doing fire, Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> you know? We finish the song, we walk out, you know? It's just fun. And he would just do the funniest things. I'd sit on his lap, and he goes, put your hands behind your back. And I'd sit on his lap, and he'd, he'd be my arms and my voice, make me look like an idiot. <laughs> that kind of stuff, just spontaneous. <laughs> but just a hum, humble cat. I just really miss him. Just, just an awesome, generous mm. cat, and... Bob Woodward called me and said, you know, tell me about his cocaine use. I'm like, come on, dude, this is my friend, really? (laughs) So people just get, you know, John was at the Starwood and someone smooshed a hamburger into his face, you know, and then he had to get a bodyguard. So, you know, he really was misunderstood in a lot of ways, but a generous, nice cat. And I just, that's why really fear got on Saturday night. He pursued, he, he did his, you know, homework, finding out who we were, what our phone numbers were, talking to us, and then meeting with us, and, and he really made it all happen. It sounds like he really appreciated the scene and wanted it to uh, to, to get a little bit more exposure. He did, yeah. and he saw it. The fact he was aware of the Go-Go's and the Circle Troops, he knew what was going on. He, he saw this awesome thing bubbling out of this, you know, dying rock that was fresh and, you know, full of life and just blooming out of the middle of this Uriah Heap and all this other music that was just dinosaur and the leftover 50s and 60s saccharin carpenters and right. all this horrible stuff that was forced on the airwaves you know finally it's like something was relieving you know people with their heads screwed on straight uh, with something fresh and something alive and with an attitude so I think he saw that and, and really embraced it Oh, and he was in a position to be able to do something, and he did. You know, he did, which is, but he which wanted to be great. a part of it, too. It's like we jam, and yeah. Lee was, we were doing a soundtrack for the movie Neighbors, and Lee was vocal coaching him. And he's there's Lee, or John, singing lead vocals, you know, with fear behind him. Wow. <laughs> so he, he, he loved it so much he wanted to do it. So, but John really, I mean, he had a band with his, his wife, Judy, and he was just, he loved being a musician and jamming that part of it as well and you know but people get in their gigs and get seen for one thing you know and so he wasn't really accepted as a musician but he brought all these other musicians to light through the Blues Brothers or even us on Saturday Night Live 
Wow. A lot of insights on, on John Belushi. Thanks for that. Yeah, um, awesome. One thing, I guess you had said uh, that you were, you produced the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, Flea was in fear, and Flea and my songs weren't being performed. We'd, we'd rehearse our, my, Flea and my songs, but come to the show, Lee would do the set list, and then it's like, hey, where are our songs? So I was really frustrated, and Flea was too. And when Flea started jamming with his roommate, Anthony at the time, and a couple of their high school buddies, Hillel and, and Jack, uh, they started doing all of Flea's songs, of course, and Flea had a, a really good outlet for all his material. And I'd hang out with them at rehearsals, and hang out with, with Flea and Anthony, other places, trying to club, or just hang out with them. So I was aware of their band forming. And then when they started doing shows, I'd just show up to support them. I'd have the night off. I'd do their sound and lights at the same time. And I was producing a reggae artist called Boo Berry at the time and uh, was in this studio, Studio 9 on Hollywood and Western. It was like 20 bucks an hour for a two-inch, which is pretty cheap. And I could get in there and block a day out, even for less. So I told him about it, and he decided to do it. And I said, let's record, you know, this band. So we did, and I tried to get them as f- much as first takes as I could, just having my own experience, knowing the first takes are the best, and you start thinking about it too much after that. Mm. I had them play songs other than the songs they were going to record just to get sounds, and then uh, I cut a bunch of songs with them and mixed it uh, over a period of a week or two, and those deal that ended up getting them a deal on EMI, and I was thrilled, and they, they ended up... Label assigned them a producer, of course, and and later on, uh, when they left EMI, they uh, were using George Clinton's studio, and I produced some more demos for them that I got their deal on Warner Brothers. Those recordings, a lot of people like Keith Forsyth and other producers say it was their best recordings, those early recordings, and I loved them because they were very funky. Halal was like you know Jimi Hendrix from the Middle East with like a funk you know, edge. Mm. And Jack is very musical on the drums, just very creative, you know, not kind of like myself, all over the toms and not just kicks in their hat. And Flea, of course, is a machine on the bass. And Anthony had so much to say and just, and was just really clever in his rhythms, just, you know, not just a square rhymer, taka 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 da. You know, he's very, very clever, you know, with throwing, you know, Buster Rhyme kind of uh, rhythms together. So I really liked that early formula. They ended up going kind of more in a rock direction because that's really what Flea liked doing. And when, without Hillel there to kind of focus it kind of more international and funky stuff, they kind of went a different direction. But for whatever it's worth, they, they, uh, they ended up just fine. Did you um, did you think that they would last or, or become as popular as they, they did? I, di- I love them. I did, and I always hope that for bands. When I see them, I'm always disappointed the public doesn't catch up to some bands because I loved them. I just was so excited about them, and I just I thought they were so funny and so original and so energetic that I I always hope, but it's like happened many times where bands like here, there's band, there was a band here in town called the Mint Chicks, these uh, four guys from New Zealand that were brilliant. You know, two brothers doing vocals, unison stuff, breaking into harmonies. One of the brothers playing guitar, one of them playing keyboards. Drummer, really original stuff. And they were just misfocused, and I thought they were brilliant. And they didn't go anywhere. So it's always my hopes, and it was always my hope that Chili Peppers took off. And fortunately, they did. It took them a few records, but they did take off, and I'm, I'm glad about that. The other sort of big thing that I think I should probably get out of the way in terms of asking you would be about the... Uh the decline of Western civilization. Like, how did that come about? Um, how did you meet Penelope uh, Spheres? Well, Lee and I were, before every show, we would blast with posters of uh, Los Angeles. And one of our favorite spots was this spot between the valley and, and 
Hollywood, uh, Laurel Canyon, because a lot of people came and went from work there. So, of course, it's totally illegal to put up these posters, but so guerrilla style, we'd be putting these posters up, and I'm sure the neighbors complained, it's like, because we were pretty, we didn't, it's not like you go back and collect your posters after the shows are over, so kind of a litter source <laughs> for the neighbors who didn't care for that. But we were really good at promoting ourselves, and Lee and I were blasting posters, stapling them, one looking out for cops and the other you know, stapling up the poster, and this car pulled up, and we thought it was another one of these neighbors just screaming at us, as often happens, and uh, and it was Penelope, and she was actually giving us props, and we sort of looked at her with, is this a trick? Are you, are you calling the police? Or the police, you know, it's like, so, she, you know, she turned out she liked us, and she and she thought we were cool, and she liked the fact that, our, especially our posters weren't your typical, you know, promoter's posters. They were hand-designed, or they're really designed by us, and so she took us in and said, uh, you know, I'm going to be doing this documentary, and my girlfriend at the time was booking some venues that weren't venues. She was in real estate, so she found this bowling alley, ex-bowling alley, uh, called and called the Arena, and turned it into a venue for a couple of shows, and one of those venues, Penelope, actually uh, filmed. So she put up these giant posters, you're going to be filmed, and put separators for the crew, and uh, filmed the show, and of course it was a good show. Uh, I remember Penelope was on one side of this white paper that had divided for the crew, and I heard her say, you know, Spitz really smart. I thought that was weird. I thought, somebody thinks I'm stupid, that <laughs> she's got to correct them. I just remember that night. and, and there was a, But people kind of, like, amped it up just because the cameras, and this probably, like, six-foot-by-four-foot sign was there, very obvious and very huge letters that you're going to be filmed. So it, like, really turned the volume up on people's, uh, you know, audience participation oh, sure, because yeah. they knew they were being filmed and there were cameras all over the place and they they weren't little wimpy cameras these were high-end serious cameras and obviously a crew there and everything so it was a it was a great setting for that recording that that filming of that show so once the the film came out how did it affect the band really well we were we were kings in a sense i remember uh the premiere for that show i just shaved my head because my girlfriend talked me into dyeing it with henna, saying it would wash out. My hair was orange. And then she says, well, I'll just put this blue in there, and it'll make it turn black. And, of course, then it turned purple. And I was a security guard. It was my day gig for, for movie sets. I was working for Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> watching the parking lot. So I couldn't really have purple hair. So I had I was at a Marine base, and they cut it all off, first into a purple mohawk, which kind of looked cool for a minute. But then I said, you know, i got a serious gig. So I, I cut it all off. And now the skinheads thought I was really cool. And I was like... Really, I just did this to get rid of the purple hair. But that uh, premiere, of course, makes us look great. She totally showcased us in that movie. Mm-hmm. I made us look bigger than life and, uh, and of course, helped us. And Bob Biggs was her husband at the time, and uh, he ran Slash Magazine and Slash Records. So having been on the Slash soundtrack for the movie, and then we did Saturday Night Live as a shoe in that we got signed. So we ended up signing Slash, I think, in December or January of 82, immediately after that. October 81, Saturday Night Live, and then we ended up touring in February. Uh, we started touring internationally, at least, in 82. So it kind of gave us street creds uh, that we that we had to a certain extent, but kind of took us over the top. It kind of put us up on a pedestal that we weren't, you know, putting us in that film was like, okay, you guys are now, uh, you know, punk icons. So it did, it did raise our credibility, and then being signed and having label support, our, our, our guarantees went up pretty considerably, you know, in the early days, fear was like getting, 
you know, $6 a man at shows, you know. Right. <laughs> After that, you know, it was considerably more. Yeah, I mean, it seems like Saturday Night Live and The Decline were both, and and done well, like like not in a cheesy way, not not you know, done with the right intention from the start. Like the way the way you talk about Penelope and the way you talk about John Belushi, like they both had, they wanted the story out there and they did it for the right reasons. And it was time, I think. It was just time. I think punk had been around since in Los Angeles my eyes noticed it like since 77 and I was interested in it from 76 but I started actually started seeing it appearing in Los Angeles by 77 and it was still kind of looked at you know people were afraid of it and I think that's the, the name fear the band came out of what was happening at the time Hillside Strangler uh, Night Stalker there were some serial murderers mm. on the wow. loose in that period of time my girlfriend you know had a gun under her pillow. She wow. people were, were truly afraid. So it's kind of shake it up a little bit and kind of just overemphasize the fear because there there was fear. There there was fear happening at the time. And Bob Seidman, a friend of Lee's, was a well known rock photographer, '60s rock photographer. Kind of came up with that name fear and thought it would be good. It was fitting for the time. So the the late '70s was kind of the birth of those punks appearing, at least for my eyes, in '77 in Los Angeles, and so by 81, you know, the mosh pit was born, and finally it was, you know, the monster was loose, <laughs> you know, it finally come to come to full fruition, and it was really bringing people in that otherwise wouldn't have been brought in, that maybe thought it was some fringe thing, there's some underground thing, and they didn't understand it, it was for weird, geeky people or something, then it started bringing in the general public, started, so... 81 was kind of the birth of the mosh pit that I saw, because before that it was kind of like pogoing and hanging out with your friends and drinking beers and bashing into each other with people you knew, and then 81, it became a real pit, you know, total strangers, you mm -hmm. know, circling and, you know, doing some damage. So it really had come to life, and then, of course, then it, it kept growing. Must have been an, an amazing time on the West Coast. It was. I, I thought musically it was brilliant. I just, I was so starved for something new. And those bands that I listened to, like the Dills, like the Deadbeats, Controllers, Weirdos, Screamers, that were, like, compared to what was being played and what other clubs were having play live, it was it was almost irreverent. But it was funny. It was it was fast. It was funny. And the and the people doing it, it was like Tomato Do Plenty, you know, would, from the Screamers, would put on this, you know, intense show, like Lee, you know. It's like, you know, this, this onslaught of, of uh, vocals that no one else was doing that I saw at the time. And then, of course, you meet him, and he had the softest handshake. I think he probably was gay, but he was a super nice cat. It's super easy going, just the sweetest guy. And other bands were doing the same thing. Other bands were kind of not taking the, the direction that pop music, you know, kind of this mechanical, manufactured, you know, repetitive dinosaur sound that had gone there. Los Angeles was alive and fertile with, with people that were saying, hey, I'm just doing what I want. You know, I can only play two chords, but dig this. I got something to say, you know. so And bands like X, of course, were very high musicianship, and, and bands like Fear kind of used that as kind of a standard. And band, the other bands, of course, like the Dills, Black Flag, those other band, bands that were also good musicians as well that kept the musicianship high. It wasn't just about I can play two chords and and therefore I'm punk, and I can't sing, therefore I'm punk. There was that high musicianship inside of all this other kind of naive 
musicianship. So it, it was very fertile, and everything kind of inspired each other. Well, I think that that gives us a good jumping-off point to go into your playlist. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Play, uh, um, I don't know, you played Dills. I saw the Dills live right after I joined Fear, and they blew my mind. And they, they were playing classical. I think it was at the Hollywood Palladium. I forget where it was exactly. Fleetwood or somewhere. No, I think it was in L.A., but they just blew my mind. Such good musicians and such high energy that it was like scary for me. It's like, God, this, these are my peers. I got to, I got to practice. You know. <laughs> well, and they were part of that whole Danger House thing, which was legendary. I mean, yeah, know, the... those records were great, and that label just, you know, it's just that the red and white stripes. You, you could spot them and, and know that hey, this is probably going to be a good record. Mm-hmm. That was but a... they were actually getting airplay. And whereas very, very few other bands were getting airplay. So Danger House was doing something right. We took KROQ, took fear bribing, you know, the people at KROQ to get on the playlist ourselves. So Did it really? Danger House, yeah, we had to bribe the uh, station manager with some legal and illegal stuff. To, <laughs> and suddenly we were on the playlist. <laughs> and our label, Slash, was so pissed. They're like, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and we're like, hey, it worked. And, and it worked in those days. <laughs> well, there you go, and maybe, well, maybe the the label need to see that that maybe Danger House did that too. I don't know, but yeah, how we did it. We played Fear played live on KROQ too. Oh, really? Just a bottle of whiskey and some cute girls, but <laughs> so we had a little bit of history in there. But um, Danger House actually got airplay. Uh, not, a, I think it was probably on Rodney Rodney's show on Sundays, but uh, but that's one of the first things to play because I, I give homage to those guys. There's a few bands that I saw that was like, holy crap, I gotta. I gotta go home and sharpen my axe. Well, it's a. It sounds like it was really a great sort of incubator for all of you. Yeah, you know, because you're uh-huh. talking. You're talking no about doubt. a lot. It just was like because they packed the house too. There were like tons of people in '78. This is like February '78, I think, when I first saw them, and they were packing the place. And, and for me, it was like God. There's a scene already here. So, so there, there was. They, they had a following in, in early 78. All right, so uh, I think we're going to go and listen to the Dills. My guest is Tim Leach, sometimes known as Spit Sticks, and uh, we're going to hear Class 4 from the Dills and a few other songs from his playlist. Please stay tuned. <laughs>
we have returned. My guest is Tim Leach, sometimes known as Spitsticks. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. All righty. And uh, so uh, let's just back announce those songs and give me a, a little little blurb on why you played what you just played. Well, class, well, all that stuff is like from 77, 78, Los Angeles. And it was the stuff that kind of like made me feel like I was in with kindred spirit. Like when I heard all that stuff, it was so fresh and irreverent and funny at the same time that it just was like, this is entertainment. This is art. You know, it's, it's not trying to repeat something that's already been done. And uh, like I was talking about Class 4, that was a band that was established in 77. And when I saw them in 78, they already had a following. And I was like, oh, damn, I'm going into this. This is going to be my, my new my new peaks. And uh, Black Flag, I became friends with Keith after he uh, was asked to leave Black Flag. But I love Black Flag. Uh, they also set the, the bar high. Uh as well as uh, the Deadbeats were doing like jazz punk. It was like totally a combination of weird instruments. But this is all late seventies Los Angeles, which a lot of these bands, you know, Controllers. We you played Slowboy. Was a band that I saw in, the, in Brenda Mullen's Mask uh, on Hollywood and Cherokee, and so much energy. Carla, uh, Mad Dog, drummer. Was was one of those drummers that I just felt like I want to be in your club, you know? She just gave it everything, totally drenched, and she played like boost the beat, played ahead of the beat, and so those are the drummers that I I would go and see and and feel like you know that's the that's the club I want to be a part of. So all those bands, I felt like you know I want to join that team. So early. Our early 80s, late 70s, those bands were pretty vibrant, and, and that's really what created the, the punk scene as I knew it, and, and at least in Los Angeles, where I was. And um, are you still friends with anybody? Did you make any sort of lasting relationships with people from that? Yeah, Keith, Keith Morris I'm still friends with. Mm-hmm. He's my homie forever. Uh, he and I used to, and some other friends of ours, had a, a group of guys we'd go out one night a week drinking called the Bud Club. Yeah. And and he, he doesn't drink anymore, but uh, he's going to be my bud forever, you know. And it's when he comes in town, you know. He's when I lived in New York, he played the Knitting Factory with uh, Midget Handjob, one of his bands, and pulled me up on stage so I could play. And last time he played uh, here in town with his band Off, mm. he announced that I was in the audience and said, you know, uh, I want you to. You know, give some respect. Let's hear some respect for Tim or for Spit Sticks. He's in the house. Of course, everyone's applauding, and I'm kind of trying to shrink in my in my shorts. You know, like uh, I should have wore a buy me a beer shirt. <laughs> but then he dedicates the whole show to me. So, so Keith is Keith is my homie forever. Mm. I've stayed in touch with him. Um, the other people, I uh, stay in touch with Philo from Fear. I although I spoke to him for a little while when I lived in New York, he and his uh, wife would come and stay with us. Uh, in the city, just for a weekend visit, and, and one weekend I remember uh, uh, it was a while back now, but he had come in with his wife and was just spending the weekend. And we were looking at the paper for something to do, and we saw Fear was playing the Continental, wow. which is a 
you know the Continental, so that's sure. a good club. And uh, so we kind of laughed about it, and uh, the phone rang, and Lee asked me to sit in for the, you know, the, the end, like, last three or four songs. So I agreed. I said, sure, I'll sit in for how much you're going to pay me, you know, and he, he owed me a lot of money, so I, he said, I'll pay you 100 bucks." so... So I agreed, and I said, hey, someone wants to talk to you. So I put Philo on, and he talked Philo into doing it. So we had, ended up having at least the three of us reunion at the Continental that night. <laughs> so it was sort of an impromptu. We ended up doing like eight songs, and my wife at the time was in the audience, and people were going, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was a surprise reunion show. That was the last time at least the three of us played together. Mm-hmm. Oh, neat. <clears throat> were you um, were you in touch with Durf near the end of his life? I was, you know, Durfy. Uh, Wait, did you just call him? Hated his did guts you... when he when he was kicked out of theater. Oh. Uh, you know, Lee had asked him, you know, not to come back, basically. And we were kind of an ass, you know, at that athletic frame of mind at the time. It's like you got to we got to rehearse five nights a week, and and Durf was kind of more of a social butterfly and was really responsible. He's the one who, obviously introduced us to Belushi, and a lot of things. Durf, because Durf was on the scene, hanging out on Sunset Strip every night, that's where he lived, he was really responsible for taking us ahead, but none of us really saw that at the time, because he wasn't pulling his weight in rehearsals. Mm. And so when when Lee basically kicked him out of the band, uh, he thought that I hated his guts, too. Oh. And I had issues with him, but I wasn't what he thought it was, and it wasn't until I did an interview, uh, and he read the interview that I was giving him props, and realized that I thought he was cool, He was that I liked his kind of Dean Martin kind of attitude on stage, <laughs> and he realized that I that I liked him, so he called me, and we rekindled our friendship, and he was sending me some files to produce some of his stuff while I was living in New York, he was living in Los Angeles in Laurel Canyon, working with a friend of his. And those recordings never came to anything, but we stayed in touch, and, you know, until, you know, not too long before he died, he he got in a car accident that really kind of took him over the edge. His health kind of wasn't that great to begin with. He had some liver problems, mm. and the car accident kind of made it worse, and, and that was kind of a, a coup de grace there for him. Mm. But a sweetheart. Durf was awesome. Durf was uh, uh, very uh, unappreciated, I think, at the time he was with Fear by, by um, at least towards the end of his uh, you know, time with Fear. I don't think he was appreciated until after the fact, at least by me. And then I sort of, in retrospect, looking back, like, you know, Durf did this, Durf did that, Durf did this, and I was kind of going down the list, like, you know, I looked at him like, there's not making a practice every night, you know, you know, right. that sort of thing. Right. You know? Well, when it's you're the in the nature of things, yeah, when you're in the middle of it, it's sometimes hard to take a step back and and see the whole picture. Mm-hmm. I'm glad well, that's what happened with Durf. I mean, yeah, awesome, awesome cat though. We have a question from a listener who wanted to know um, which record did better: uh, the the Fear the record or more Beer? Fear the record. I still get royalties on it. Actually, still sells. You know, as, as easy as to. Oh. You know, you know, rip it from YouTube. It actually still sells. And um, when I lived in New York, Bruce Harrison, uh, who was the indie buyer for Virgin Megastore at the time, had it like featured. You walk in the store, and there it is in your face. You know, the CD. 
along with some other iconic punk records, but it continues to sell. Mm-hmm. And uh, as well as uh, Repo Man soundtracks, another one with oh. let's have a war on it that still sells actually. So. Right. Yeah. So the the record uh, really outsells all the other fear things. I mean, the More Beer record was done in two days, soup to nuts, which I started out being producer, and I sort of put my hands up halfway through it, like, all right, Lee, you take credit for this, because it really went way too fast for me. Wow. In spite of, it came out good. It was funny. It was it had some, it was fun doing, but it was like literally two days of Cherokee in Hollywood, and, and that was it. One day of cutting, one day of mixing, done. Wow. And I I like I mix stuff. All stuff I work on now, I'll, I'll spend a week mixing one track. Mm-hmm. Of course, I can afford it. I have my own studio, my own house. But back then, it's you know it's a lot for studio time. So we did that record. I think we spent thirty two hundred bucks, sixteen hundred bucks a day. We we paid for block out time at Cherokee, mm. and that's what we did it in. <laughs> and Ron Gowdy uh, released it. He gave us a package and distribution deal, and it was a great deal for us, you know. But it didn't get uh, the time I would have liked to. The record we spent a couple weeks uh, rehearsing, just rehearsing, just specifically to go in and record those things, knowing that we were going to be in the studio in two weeks. So, so it was a lot more preparation for the first record. And you know, the the, the first record was engineered kind of by an old school engineer. I would probably do things differently myself, mm-hmm. but. You know, some people say it's too clean or whatever, but it was kind of the tools we had. I think we had a $60,000 budget to do that record, and the studio we recorded at it was pretty expensive. I remember walking in, and uh, Rick Springfield was in there, and his dog had just pooped in the studio as we walked in to check our room out. Like, oh, great. (laughs) This is where we're cutting our next record. That's what the $60,000 is for. With this. Sent of Jesse's girls, yeah. masters, you know, or that's Jesse's Jesse's girls' writers' dogs poop. Right, <laughs> oh, that's funny, and that's amazing that the, about how much your budget was for because it's you have to come up with a clean sounding record for sixty thousand dollars. You can't really yeah. I mean, get the dirty punk. That studio had a nice Neve console, and it was mm. a great studio. I remember. I spilled beer on it accidentally one time and Ooh. caused a lot of heart attacks. And I'm sure. I know it was an a awesome console and, and great gear, and it came out nice and because the studio was nice, whereas like the Chili Pepper stuff that I cut uh, in Studio 9 for 20 bucks an hour, uh, there's some acapella singing stuff where you can hear, because I got cables run like, you know, 50 feet out into the hallway to get natural reverb in the hallway. Right. You can hear this constant hum, you know, mm, through the whole, you know, acapella section, you know, it's like, but, you know, it's, people are forgiving. If the thing's alive, then it doesn't matter the quality, really, whereas we really honed and spent a lot of time getting things to sound right. And Gary Lubo, the engineer, producer of that record, was kind of schooled in that quality of sound, too. He wasn't a punker you know, by any means. He just, he wanted to get classic, clean rock sounds. So that's why that record came out the way it did. And for whatever it's worth, I thought we gave good performances and and it sounds good. I think I'm I'm, I'm proud of those recordings and uh, the fact that all that stuff got, you know, logged in when it did. And and of course, like I say, I still get, I'm not getting rich on royalties. Early days, it was pretty, pretty substantial. 
nowadays, you know, it's it's a nice surprise when I get a little check. It's like, hey, somebody's actually buying this record stock. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and as I think that it's more, you know, there's a lot of older punk records that kind of are seen more as just a document because the quality, the recording quality is not great. So it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, it's it's historical and it's this and that. But that record did sound really good and the and the drumming was super, you know. It, yeah, I was spending two weeks, you know, clean, sober, that definitely helped putting that down. And being when you're spending that much money in the studio, you tend not to, to cloud your brain with anything. I mean... Right. We all like to party in those days, like anyone else. But I think that little window of time, we said, "Okay, let's let's try and do this," you know, and not waste money. Mm-hmm. Hey. And I and I was when I was looking for songs uh, play on your show. I just I realized going back, like, wow, it's like listening to Black Flag stuff, or you know, some of the some of the recordings. So it's like, man, that was just horrible. People, <laughs> of course, they couldn't afford decent recording a lot of bands in those days but I just think now how cheap it is you know with with people have, being able to have home digital studios you can spend so much more time getting good sounds now than, than you could then it was like people had 16 tracks or 4 tracks and you know and maybe the guy who was a busboy you know at the restaurant is now doing sound at, at their little stage in the back and now he's qualified to record a record <laughs> right yeah you know so the, the quality you know you kind of gotta look over the shortcomings sometimes of the, of the sound to look back at some of that stuff mm-hmm. at least i do and and just remember that what it was doing wasn't trying to make a you know an audiophile statement as much as this art statement right yeah, yeah. in a naive way because some of those bands had no idea how good they were they were just doing what they loved doing and I, think, I love that. And I think when you when you touched on the subject of that your engineer wanted to make a rock record, I think that's what a lot of punk bands ran into. They ran into people that were behind the controls that were not on the same page with what they were doing. And mm-hmm. and uh, and the, and if an uneducated band goes in there, and even if they're recording in sixteen tracks, if they don't realize the best way to use all sixteen tracks, they have some songs that are recorded on nine or whatever, and. You know that kind of thing. There's a the learning curve. I think at that period of time was was huge, and and a lot of recordings sounded terrible, just because it was sort of like okay, it's time to record, and nobody knew anything about it. But also, just producers. There's just a million people that call themselves producers. Mm-hmm. And growing up, I had some horrible ones, and I learned to be a good one, having been exposed to some bad ones. But getting in the studio, people would, in your cutting to two inch tape. Whereas nowadays, you cut to digital, you've got unlimited takes. Right, like true. When I record a band, I'll do three takes. That's it. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll say, if you can't get it by then, then we're moving on to the next song. Whereas those days, it's like, okay, we could do a better take. We could do a better, and, and subsequent takes are becoming more and more sterile, and you're thinking so much more about what you're doing rather than just doing it, that people settled for these horrible, sterile, and yet maybe technically right, recordings, you know, so you listen to the recordings and you're like, they don't sound as near as good as they do live because they were micromanaged in the studio by some horrible producers like, oh, you dropped your pick in that one spot. Everyone else is perfect, so let's do the whole song again. Right. You know, it was just those horrible decisions made by amateur or just, you know, stupid producers at the time, too. I'm sure that still happens, but 
back then it was you couldn't afford. Finally, you scrapped, scratch up enough money to get in the studio, and and you're taking the word of someone who's basically killing the life of your song. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of a lot of recordings out there where that definitely happens. Hey, I need to uh, to give a station ID here, and then I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, your your current music stuff. So we yeah, are, yeah, right on. we are WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WFMU.org, and uh, Tim, your your most recent uh, foray in music is Nasal Rod. Yeah, yeah, this is a band I've been playing with for a couple, I guess, a couple years. Mm-hmm. The band that um, uh, the guitarist was in another band with me called Lickety, and whenever I was free, I'd go see them, and they were my favorite local band. And the drummer moved to Seattle, and they were maybe performing once a year after that. And then I still go see them because I love them. It was like a power trio with a singer out in front, which I love. It was my favorite combination. And just really powerful power trio, just really good songs and good melodies. And singer, perfect intonation, and yet a really aggro, good, punky approach, too. So I'd go see them. And when uh, the drummer, Matt, moved to Seattle, I was raising my hand like, uh, you need a drummer? <laughs> so I started playing with them, and of course I learned all Matt's parts, and then when we started writing new songs, it just took off. And and the first song we wrote is this song, Hype, which is a good, good example for you to play, because it kind of shows like the same kind of approach I take, that kind of musical approach, like on Let's Have a War, where I don't go to a typical backbeat drum beat, where I like playing around the drums. And this was like our first writing songs together as a quartet, and we still write that way. We, we have a really good uh, sense of balance and harmony as far as our writing goes, and really good cooperation. And I just, I love this band. Everyone in the band is awesome. They're really good people. But just musically, just I really respect, like Justin's one of the best guitarists that I've ever worked with, just really clever, and just... Just everyone is just very humble with a vengeance in this band. So I love it. And the, and the audience has said things to us, like we played at a show up in Olympia. And one of the other bands, Reviver, came up to us and they were saying, You guys exude love and joy when you play. And there I am, totally drenched in sweat. And we just delivered this barrage of aggro music. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Oh, I like that compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that, that comes through. There's a sense of humor, but. It's musical, uh, it's clever, but it's like at the end of my gas pedal where I love playing. Well, shall we, uh, shall we listen to, oh, and, well, you have a 7-inch out. Yes, a new 7-inch mm-hmm. uh, is from Nasal, Nasal Rod. You go to nasalrod.com, you can actually hear some of the other stuff that maybe you couldn't play on the radio. But, uh, but <laughs> actually, there's a download card that has some other stuff on it, too, but... Uh, this is our first 7-inch with me on it, and these are things I produced and engineered myself, so we were able to take time, record them in our comfy spot where we're all comfortable playing, and I was able to mix them, uh, you know, at my, at my leisure, yeah. and so I was, I'm happy with the results of this, and it's, it's just a band I love working with. And, and I see that you are using the name Spitsticks as oh your yeah. drummer name. I mean, I, yes. I still use that name and plenty of people still know me as that and that's that's cool that's it's part of my part of who i am too right it's, sure yeah so there and my daughters got, and my sons have bragging rights on that 
my, my, my son was standing, and he lives in Los Angeles, and he was standing uh, across the street from Gazzari's, came out of a restaurant, he's hanging out with his buddies, and they're talking about their parents, and one of his buddies is like, yeah, my dad's a banker, and his other buddy's like, yeah, my dad does this, and but, and just coincidentally, on the billboard, an old fear poster came up, and it's the one with where we're all, I think I'm holding a violin, and I've got suits and a stupid look on my face, mm-hmm. but there's the fear four fears, you know, face, you know, on this giant billboard, just when people are talking about their dads, and my son's like, that's my dad. (laughs) (laughs) So, my kids love the fact I'm spit sticks. My daughter's nine, my son's like 28, Mm -hmm. but they love the fact that I'm spit sticks, so I'm very much that. So, so shall we listen to some nasal rod then? Yeah, play play hype. That's that's a good example of, of what I'm doing right now. Awesome. So, uh, so my guess is, is Spitsticks, sometimes known as Tim Leach, and uh, we're going to hear some <clears throat> something that he is doing currently, and this is Nasalrod, and the website is nasalrod.com. Is there a uh, Facebook also? Yeah, I'm sure you could Google it and find the Facebook page as well. Okay, very good. Stay tuned. Camp and all the others. All right, so stay tuned. Here's some Nasalrod. What? Yeah. Hi, 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 hi. 
out and my guest fades back in, I hope. Tim, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Awesome. Uh, so give us a rundown on Soli. Soli is uh, what I did when I lived in New York City. I moved there in 92. I broke up in 93, so I started studying digital audio. And by about 96, uh, jungle music, I started hearing in clubs. Uh, and a friend of mine, Randy Moore, turned me on a DJ, turned me on to some jungle stuff, Boimarang and some early jungle stuff, which is the predecessor to drum and bass. And I, the drums totally interested me, in the same sense when I first heard Sex Pistols, the same sort of fascination and awe happened when I started listening to early jungle drum and bass. Beats I could play. It was like surf punk beats, kind of with a different emphasis, a little more funky. But it was really interesting, kind of reggae dub bass lines with double-time drums. So it was really fascinating for me. Uh, and I started just playing along with, with records, and it interested me enough to to start writing it. So that last track, uh, Papi Chulo, was one of the tracks that I did with kind of a punky guitar, but in a drum and bass style. And I put a 12-inch out in 98 and got airplay in Rio, in Tokyo, in Argentina, uh, in London. I started getting the 12-inch, started getting play everywhere. And the flip side of it, uh, DJs were playing at 33 and a third. It's a 12-inch 45, but DJs were playing the flip side of Rapido at 33, and it sounds, you know, totally bizarre. At first, when I, I was in a lounge in New York, I heard that. I went to the DJ and said, you know, you're playing it at the wrong speed. He goes, I know, isn't it cool? <laughs> so it was a way for me to kind of, kind of focus on computer-oriented writing, and I didn't need a band. I just started doing stuff at home in the midst of learning digital audio. And then I more got into listening to drum and bass. I started programming it. And it kind of took me into that whole project. And then I got a, a five-piece band plus a sound guy, Victor Rice, doing dub, along with my live band, and started performing that record off. That that album's called Leap Before You Look, uh, Soul Eye Records. It's on CD Baby. You can find it a bunch of places. Uh, and I started getting airplay, and it got to the point where a jingle house that I was working for light, got me licensed uh, on Viacom, so I started started licensing it. I'd still license on Viacom on, on some MTV shows. And then uh, uh, Michael Bay, director, heard it, uh, one of the tracks on there called Lo Siento, and took a 30-second clip of it and used it for a Victoria's Secret ad. Oh, really? So it got licensed for Victoria's Secret. I made a good chunk of money doing that. And then in 2006, uh, it happened again. They used it again. So I've actually licensed and made a good chunk. I was making my living uh, with that CD when I lived in New York. From uh, Well, that CD came out, literally, it came out in October 2002. And I moved to Portland, where I'm living now, in uh, 2005. But it was kind of a calling card for me as a producer, engineer, composer, uh, to, to work with, and I got a lot of work. I did. I was done a lot of uh, TV scores, uh, some HBO shows, and I'm still doing it. Work with Patty Strutter, um, a composer out of New York. She and I work together still. We just finished a documentary together that's coming out on PBS. So it's something I still love doing. I love producing, and I'm producing bands here in town still, which is one of my big loves. I, I love recording bands, and I, I'll take my little portable system 
into their little basement rehearsal spaces, and most people are pretty amazed that I can get such a good sound out of a basement because just I know how to place the mics and how to set volumes. But it's just what I love doing, and I still love doing that. Mm. Um, a band of Marmots, Justin, who plays with me in, in uh, Nasal Rod, uh, has a band Marmots for a while, so I just uh, recorded him doing a cover of Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover, which came out so good, and he's such a good singer on this. He's just, his character is just amazing, and you're, you know, you're grabbing your throat if, when you hear his vocal. It's it's just such an epic vocal he has. And another band I played with here in town, Lickety, for about five years, is another uh, thing that I recorded that was really a blast, just recording in basements. So another band, Aranya, I just put a, I did put the record out for Abiqua, which is another album recorded basically in a basement. It doesn't sound like a basement, you know, it's, it's, but it, I like recording people where they're comfortable, where they, you know, are used to eating their lunch and writing the songs and they're, they're not self-conscious. And that's really kind of a key, the way I like to record bands, so they're not mm. self-conscious, so they can just perform and they're not thinking about performing so much as just performing. That's right. kind of my, my, the way I like to capture things. I just like to surprise people with hide the record button, you know, tell them, let's just run through the song and actually be recording. Of course, oh, I that's just neat. Away my secret now. That's a, that's a really neat um, approach because there is, there's a whole stigma attached to, like, we're going into the studio next week. And it's, uh-huh. you've got to sort of prepare for it and you're bringing the things that you have to have with you and, you know, whatever. And it really, it is an ordeal and it's certainly wouldn't the word comfortable does not come to mind it's like it's an effort you've got to do this and of course the, the studio has so much to offer you have to do it but plus like don't put your beer there don't put your coffee there right. don't eat that here right you know there's all these limitations when you're in the studio as well as you feel like you're under the the spotlight and on the hot seat you know when the right. engineer says we're rolling you know it's like uh i better not mess up right <laughs> whereas in my situation i'm like hey you know we're going to we're going to cut this thing. It's like, okay, you know, in my mind, I've, I'll listen to a take and think like, okay, I got that. And I'm like, all right, let's do another one just just for safety. And we already got one in the can. You know, I'm telling them. And we're just doing this for safety just in case. And now they're, the heat's off and, and they do a relaxed take and I end up keeping that take. Right. So it's just that I know how I feel in the studio. I'm not, the producer's making me feel self-conscious about my left hand falling on the snare accidentally once in a while, I'm not going to be thinking about performing. I'm going to be more technical, and I'm not going to get that that life that you get in the first take. That's just, you can't capture it any other way, but just be rolling in that period of time. Oh, yeah, agreed. If you're self-conscious, the soul isn't coming out. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. re-performing. You're not performing. Right, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, so um, I know that you, you, how long have you been living in Portland for? Since uh, September 2005. Oh, okay. And that, well, that's a long time. What do you, what do you like about Portland? I like, uh, of course, I like the conifers. I love the trees. The weather here is amazing. Mm. It may rain very often, but if the sun comes out regularly, the air quality is amazing. I love New York City to death. It's one of my favorite cities in the entire world. But my daughter was like a year and a half, and I really wanted to get her out of Dodge. After 9-11, I just found some toxic things in my apartment, decided to get her out, and I had some opportunities out here, so 
my mom was living out here and brother. So I came out here and I missed the money I made in New York, but I but I love it here and I love the people here. The kind of come as you are, you know. People, it's not like girls aren't all skinny wearing leggings. It's more, <laughs> you know. There's some hairy armpits and legs here, and uh, but it's awesome. The people here are very rich with just a genuine that I love. I just I love. Uh, I love the vibe here, and it's very reminds me of kind of late seventies Los Angeles, that fertile soil that LA had just for art, and so that's here. It's really active here, and I, I I feel I'm a part of that, and I'm really glad to be producing bands doing something that aren't trying to be something else, that are doing their own thing with, you know, so much enthusiasm, and I, I'm glad I'm a producer right now here, capturing that. Is there a is there a, a genre that seems to be sort of bubbling under in in Portland? I, I don't think there's a name for it yet. There's some like I I think with Nazarod, some journalists have had a hard prop time uh, pigeonholing us into a genre. It can be like you know I I don't know how to exactly categorize some of the music out here. I mean some of it's straight ahead rock, and you know there's some old time music, and there's all kinds of Fit genres, but then there's bands that don't really fit into the, any genres. There's bands that are doing punk disco, you know. There's there's bands that are doing uh, old time, you know, instruments, and yet they're playing a Michael Jackson tune, funky as hell. Mm. So there's there's all kinds of things here, but you know, I, I I couldn't really pigeonhole it into a genre except you can go to a show and it's not like you've got homogenous set of all punk bands or all rock bands, you know, the opening band will be singer-songwriter and the next band will be you know, two guys and a drum machine, and the, the third band's uh, a grindcore you know, it's like, mm. it's very like a three-ring circus, you know and I, I don't think that's a fault of any promoter here, I just think things fall into in, into place that way, just, and everyone happens to know each other and appreciate each other, no matter what the genre so it's it may seem hodgepodge, you know, when I'm talking about it, but it's it's very entertaining. Sometimes it's like hide behind your beer bad, <laughs> but other times it's like, damn, I, you know, I, I want to go up and talk to that girl, tell her I want to produce her, you know, and of course, you know, she'll think I'm macking her. And, but a lot of times I see bands, like I've mentioned the Mint Chicks before, that, mm-hmm. that are, no one knows how good they were, including them. So... So there's there's that newness here that I see, and the Northwest has got some great bands. I think Reviver, when I saw them, they were like a power pop punk band, and most people are like, oh, uh, pop punk, but these people just put out such a good show and such good energy. And I don't look at it as punk pop. I just look at it as this is 2013 music. Like, so there's there's a need for a new genre name for a lot of the kind of music that's bordering out of this city and mm-hmm. we'll see what it actually turns into but I'm excited that mm-hmm. you can't categorize it Neat um, So do you want to uh, to play a couple things I guess uh, I was thinking of the Marmots track yeah. perhaps Yeah, yeah play um, play Lickety Lickety's a band that um, Justin and I played played in most recently uh, that band's kind of on hiatus but it's it's a good example of like Try and categorize this. This is like a good example of a Portland band. It's awesome, but 
doesn't really fit into a category. And uh, song Wubom is the track. Okay, so we're going to uh, we're going to hear some Lickety, and uh, my guest DJ is Tim Leach, Spit Sticks. Um, both of those guys are are here <laughs> <laughs> on uh, WFMU, and stay tuned. Here's some Lickety net up up next. Well, there we go. <laughs> Marmot is uh, Justin, a guitarist from Nasal Rods, one of his other bands with his cousins. And that's, again, done in a basement, basically, for the most part. I think he did his vocal up in the, in his cousin's living room. But uh, I love the, the version. They did a swing version of this 90s uh, pop song that I thought was hilarious. Just an example of turning something inside out and just making it their own. Yeah, it's great. And they, do they wear masks on stage? They do, and they... they they all stay in character, and they kind of are, they stay in character. It's like a fa- gravelly falsetto voice they all speak in. But it's the most amazing thing, because the, the band will drop out in certain sections of their songs, and like all f- five of them, depending on how many of them are there, sometimes more, uh, will be a cappella in this voice that sounds like this. Nice. And it's just this, it's like the rosin on a violin sound turned up, so you hear all these guys' voices in falsetto, acapella, and it's the most amazing-sounding resonance <laughs> that you've ever heard. But they're they're hilariously funny, but they're all, of course, great musicians. It's, it's very entertaining, and it's, it's just a funny show to watch. And Justin's just a character, you know, in bands that he fronts himself. He's, he's just very, very clever and funny. And then... Uh... And before the Marmons, I guess I guess you did uh, introduce Lickety a little. Yeah, Lickety is a, a band Justin and I were in with our friend Tom Potts. And that band was alive for about five years with Tom and I for the first few years. And Justin joined it the last couple of years and put an album out, Toy Bomb, and played all over here in Portland and, uh, and kind of uh, kind of came to full fruition. And we'll see if if that band plays together again, but in the meantime, we've kind of just grown out of it, but it was just an example of another basement recording project that I did of music that's not really categorizable, and, and yet it's really alive and, and fresh with elements from a few things. I, I love drum and bass, and I try and put it in every possible music I play, and uh, everyone brings different elements into into Nazarod as well. There's everyone has totally diverse things that he or she listens to and brings those things together kind of in this inner collective that's 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 we all love. And the same thing with Lickety, same same idea there. Just coming out of jams, turning those into songs and then my being able to actually record this thing and bring it into my studio and, and pull it up and to my amazement, it's like, wow, I've never heard this combination before. Mm. 
And really, in this day and age, that's something to say. You know, I love it. I like. I mean, I won't get rich. You know, probably making this kind of music, but uh, I love it, and I I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. Mm. And uh, well, we are we're almost um, to our time, and uh, I just wanted to um, to thank you for coming on the show. And, of course. Thanks, and, Diane, for and, being there. I'd, lo- I'd love your show. It's amazing that somebody is this ray of light out there and <laughs> all this horrible manufactured, forced-on, you know, clear-channel sound. Well, thank you. And, and, you know, what I'm really getting from you, I mean, you obviously you provided so much for a certain generation, you know, when you were in fear, and, and, uh, and that you can't take away from anybody. But... You have continued, and I know that you were playing music before you went, were in fear, but what I'm really struck by is your thrill of just being in music and living a life of an artist, you know, and, and yeah, you're... Con- I, you're I do it for the love of it. That's, yeah. It's a labor of love, that's uh, for sure. Oh, and it's so evident. I, it's so evident, and it's it's really, it's such an honor to have you on, because it's like, people are just like, this guy seems really nice. Like you know, it, but it really shows, and you're genuine, and you're dedicated, and it's like wherever you were, you're doing music, you're making a difference, you know. And I just want to thank you for for your history. Obviously, for you know, I came out of the whole old school punk thing, and right and, and all that, and but just for what you continue to do now, you know? uh-huh. yeah. I'm, so thanks. I'm not getting rich like I say at it, but I love it, and it's like. You know, there's been moments where I've made a really good living at being an artist. When I lived in New York, I did, and I come here, and it's like, it doesn't matter. Cost of living is less, and, and, you know, different lifestyle for me, but I'm doing what I love, and that's what matters. I'm I'm able to live here as an artist, and I've loved that about Portland. The cost of living is a fraction of what it is in New York. I'm I'm making a fraction of the money, but it's just fine. It's like I'm still able to produce and over record and produce bands. I'm able to write be a composer, be a drummer. I, I teach drums, so I'm able to play. My chops are better than ever, which is, I love being on that edge, too. So having my drum chops just be as sharp as they ever been makes me feel good. I wake up in the morning feeling like, yes, I'm still moving ahead. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. He's living the dream. I am. <laughs> it's awesome. And I do want to uh, put out there, we discussed this off mic before, that the that there's a spit six fan page on Facebook, but it is run by a fan. It is not run by you. Yeah, it's not me. And a lot of people, I go on there to check it, because I, I think it's an awesome site. Um, I've gone on there and seen TV commercials that, that uh, I did with Fear back in the 80s that I haven't seen since Wait, then. Wait, TV since commercials? Like what TV That are hilarious. They're commercials we did for, I think, Magic 106. They said reverse psychology commercials that are hilarious that I didn't even know. I don't know how this person got a hold of them. Wow. But And there's stuff links to other things that I've done, uh, a link to a movie documentary I did for a buddy of mine about the lady that I take care of, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just stuff, that, all kinds of links. So it's a great Facebook page, but I go on there, even my own brothers are going, hey, what's going on, dude? <laughs> I'm like, uh, I have to send them a proper email going, uh, if you want to contact me, contact me here. Right. And people, if you do want to contact me, you pretty much Google my name, Google Tim Leach, L-E-I-T-C-H, or or spit sticks, and you probably find a link to me that way on the Solite site. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's links, all kinds of uh, email links to me that way. Yeah, and I did too. link. I I linked up the uh, the Solite site on the uh, on the playlist here as well. 
Yeah, and that's usually spitsticks at mac.com gets me. And I'm, I'm really good about getting back to people. Sometimes it takes a little time, but um, I totally invite anyone to, to write me. I'm totally open to that. I totally dig people's uh, enthusiasm. Our criticism. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, and we dig your enthusiasm, and thank you so much just for, for everything and for, of course, today specifically, but just everything that you've been up to. It just makes such a difference, and, oh, thanks, uh, and we are all grateful. So um, yes. so what are we going out with? we got one um, more I, song. You know, in all homage to the other kind of music that played, like so much in early punk days, and it still plays, it's, but it started then. Uh, was reggae, you know, so much reggae stuff was played in punk clubs and, you know, just to juxtapose the aggro end of, of punk stuff, it was balanced with this dub tracks and there was like a place, uh, a bowl of cherries in Los Angeles. I used to hang out with some, some buddies of mine from Jamaica that I used to toast actually in the early 80s and, uh, but reggae really was the balance, the, the yin to the punk's yang, uh, in those days. So maybe, Either there's like a, I think I gave you a really rare Marley dub or even a Barrington Levy. Barrington Levy uh, just had some really hypnotic dub stuff that I really dug. Just, and that's a good example of kind of just that balance of uh, dub. Really was the first stuff that I ever wrote over, dub music. I hear dub tracks, versions, which are instrumental versions of maybe a more popular reggae track mm-hmm. without the vocals. And it's kind of like, pre-karaoke where, you know, you could <laughs> sing the original song, but toasters in Jamaica didn't, like Big Youth, who I loved, uh, just would come up with their own uh, lyrics over a popular, you know, reggae track. And that was just the birth of me. That's how I started writing. So to pay homage to that, I'd pay, played like the Barrington Levy track, Bounty Hunters. Uh, it was a great Barrington Levy track, but it, even as a, work really well as a dub, because it kind of leaves room for the listener's imagination. Mm, cool. So that is going to be the final uh, the final song of the day. Uh, Tim, thank you so much. Thank you, Diane. Thanks for being there. My Thanks for doing pleasure. what you do. My pleasure. So we are WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WFMU.org. This is Barrington Levy with uh, Bounty Hunter dub, and uh, stay tuned. Mm-hmm.